Ready? Um, how's Andy and Clay Patrick? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Infinite variety. Interesting. Yeah, What'd you say? They don't have Corona. That's they don't look. <laughs> they don't have Corona. No, no. <laughs> um, probably not. Well, so, but you know that if you look at Shakespeare's career, um, there are. Uh, times when he's not writing plays, and that's usually because it's plague, and London is closed down, and um, basically if you're in London, you can't leave, and if you're not in London, you can't go. And the the people did try would try to escape from, and succeed in escaping from London, but uh, there were lots, lots of quarantines in Shakespeare's day, and uh, Shakespeare did sometimes did other writing uh, in time of plague, but oh, plague was a thing. Sorry? How did he avoid the plague? He avoided it like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Are we talking bubonic or just other plagues? Um, no, that was earlier. Yeah, no. Uh, no, but like no, the, the bubonic plague technically still exists. Yeah. We just have kind of still it. Yeah. But like, uh, I didn't know if that was like a... Yeah, like, no, I think it was bubonic or... Uh, I, think, I think it was but not at the same level as uh, 200 years earlier. Yeah. But yeah, the, it was the last really great plague in, in, in modern memory is the influenza plague of 1918, 1919. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, that killed like 1% of the people in the world. Wow. And, um, My great-grandfather died. He was nursing someone in the family. The person recovered and he died. Wow. So, this doesn't look to be that bad, but be careful. Don't touch your faces. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah, clearly. My phone is ready. I turned on the radio in the car this morning, and there was like a like tutorial on like step by step on how to put on like a mask. And uh, then this lady called in. She said, "But it's so uncomfortable." <laughs> <laughs> What's uncomfortable? Dying. Okay, so, exactly. Which would you rather be more uncomfortable doing? Putting the mask on or dying the slow, painful death? Somebody once argued with me that like CPR was not helpful because you can break someone's ribs and broken ribs really hurt. And I'm like, if you need CPR and you don't get it, like you will. Di- like that's not. Yeah. A- the New Yorker has a wonderful cover. Of yeah. Trump instead of the mask over yeah, his mouth, it's over, over his, his eyes. eyes. Yeah, yeah that, it is That's a brilliant great. cover. <laughs> All right then, um, Andy and Cleopatra, are you finding? Tim. How are you finding the nor- uh, reading North, North Plutarch? That we're about to have a quiz on mm-hmm. that North Plutarch. I don't like reading it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's difficult. You're nice. you're not finding it easier as you go along. I mean, I guess, relatively speaking, maybe, but, like, so, generally speaking, no. Oh. Well, see what Shakespeare does with it, man. Um, I kind of enjoyed reading it a little bit, because I remember in uh, senior year of high school, we actually watched Antony and Cleopatra, mm-hmm. and reading over this was kind of nice to see, like, where the people who did the movie sort of filled yeah. in and threw away some of the holes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I find it <clears throat> kind of helpful for giving context. So, like in Act One, when they're talking about how he ate tree bark this one time or whatever, right. I sort of know what that's referring to. Yeah. Um, I did think it was an interesting writing style of just being like, and then this happened, and then after that, this yeah. happened, and then yeah. that happened. 
Yeah. Not exactly engaging. <laughs> well, it does give you, well, th there are two things that, that there's what North does and there's what Plutarch does. So Plutarch is really interested in, in historical characters. And in, he's doing these, he was a biographer. And he's doing these biographies of people. And he's not really giving you, although he does, but it's not the kind of history of events, but it's the, uh, the really vivid and interesting persons within history. And that, of course, is what Shakespeare is interested in because the plays are all have plots, but it's really much more in the comedies than in the tragedies that the plots matter. The, what the plot of a tragedy is is someone has power and that power gets eroded and chipped away and then they die. And uh, it could, you could begin with how they get power, as we do in Macbeth, but really what, what tragedies are following is the loss of power, the, uh, which, is, which is the story of every person's life. And the, therefore, what makes tragedies interesting are the characters. And what we've been looking at, for example, in Macbeth, is uh, the tragedy of someone who is a really interesting character despite the fact that he's evil. And he's not interesting because he's evil. He's interesting because of his own experience of himself as an evil person, which is to say that what Shakespeare is doing in Macbeth, which is, which is not unprecedented, but which is fairly unusual is to treat a character who would usually be the villain as the way you would treat the victim of a villain. That is the way you would treat someone who is unable to sustain their own, generally speaking, legitimate expectation that they can live their life in a reasonably good way. So let's just say the tragedy is about figures who are, who, well, we'll just say that tragedy is, is uh, the experience of misfortune. That, that is, that's not the definition of tragedy, but that is an essential component for a tragedy is that someone experiences misfortune. I quoted Aristotle for you before about pity and terror, that pity is for unmerited misfortune. Terror is about a character like ourselves. But in both cases, what we have is the idea of misfortune, and we feel pity for unmerited misfortune. Terror for how someone is going to be destroyed for the misfortune that they merit. But we also realize, this is Aristotle, that in some sense, if they merit destruction, then so do we. And in both those cases, we're looking at figures who we're not thinking of as villains. Someone, unmerited misfortune is Tiny Tim. Someone like ourselves is Scrooge. That is, uh, we are all selfish, we're all self-dealers, we know that Scrooge is a jerk, but we also have to admit that his jerkiness is not something unrecognizable 
in, um, even if in weaker senses, in our own life. We're not Bob Cratchit, and we're certainly not Tiny Tim. So if you ask yourself who you are most like, who any, re who any real person is most like in A Christmas Carol, that would be Scrooge. And that's why when Scrooge gets terrified by, the ghost, by Marley and the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas future, you all know the story, right? You, you, um, um, it's another role played by um, Patrick Stewart. So this is really a pet. He should play. He should play Antony. Then, then the class would be complete. Uh, but if you um, think about what makes a Christmas Carol effective, it's that Scrooge's terror is a terror that we can imagine applying to us that we can imagine also being haunted, being frightened by, being rebuked by ghosts and supernatural presences for ways that we have failed to act the way we um, know morally we should have acted. And it's not that anyone feels that they're as bad as Scrooge. It's part of Dickens's genius that we all get to think, well, at least I'm better than Scrooge. But we're not that much better than Scrooge. So that for Aristotle is the misfortune of someone like ourselves. And that's what makes the appearance of ghosts to Scrooge and their rebuke something that is scary. Whereas we feel pity for Tiny Tim. And so tragedies in general are about either people who don't merit misfortune or people who are like ourselves. And that's one, one deduction from the, from the way ourselves describing pity is about unmerited misfortune, terror, the misfortune of those like ourselves. But what that means is there's a third kind of figure who's the antagonist or the opposition or the bad guy in a tragedy who does merit misfortune, not the way we do because we somehow haven't lived up to what we know that we should do, not because, let's say, of weakness of the will, which is essentially the way we think of ourselves as meriting punishment because we know what the right thing to do is and we kind of like to do the right thing and um, we wish we could do the right thing, but we didn't and then we feel remorse. But tragedy, therefore, is not about the sheer villains. It's hard, not impossible, but hard to see Iago as, the tra as a tragic figure in Othello. It takes work and it may not be work worth doing. But you can, Shakespeare does make Iago's motivations at least sufficiently, well, do people know Coleridge's famous line about Iago, his famous two-word uh, description of Iago? A villain? No, that's Shakespeare's. Uh, <laughs> like a uh, villain, yes. A uh, is word one, and villain is word two. Yeah, it's the a uh, that makes that famous. Um, no, Shakespeare in the Dramatis Personae, uh, the only person in Shakespeare's list of the characters in his plays who's called a villain is Iago. So, uh, but, but uh, do you guys know who Joan Didion is? Yes. The, the, what have you read by her? Um, I feel like I, I don't know like, what exactly I've read, but my dad really likes her. Okay. So he made me read her. 
after her husband died. That's yeah. I think he may be her most recent. No, she's written stuff since she then. But what's like her yeah. most significant work? Well, the work that made her famous is a novel called Play It As It Lays. Mm. And then she has another book of nonfiction reportage called Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And then she has a book um, <clears throat> called The Year of Magical Thinking, which is uh, her husband suddenly dropped and dead. Daughter. And yeah, and then her daughter died also. Sorry? She like talks with her hands. Yeah. Anyhow, the reason I bring her up is that the first sentence of Play It As It Lays is, or the first paragraph is, what makes Iago evil, some people ask, I never ask. So that, that idea that, what, that people ask what makes Iago evil, that goes back to Coleridge who called Iago, his famous phrase about Iago is motiveless malignity. That is that he's malign for reasons that have no motives. And you could say that that's the definition of a villain. The villain is is primitive or primary or um, no um, can't be analyzed any further. The villain simply wants to do evil. And that's why the villain is usually can't be a tragic figure because we have to see good reasons for someone doing evil things for them to be tragic. And Scrooge is about the limit of, what, of how far we can go there. Except that Scrooge isn't the limit, Macbeth is the limit. And that what is uh, strange and unusual about Macbeth is that here you have a tragedy about a figure who in no way, once you get past the opening, everything that he does is wrong. And everything that he does is motivated not by good, but by evil motives, by, by selfishness. And it's not that he gives in to temptation, although you could say that that's what you're seeing at the start of the play, but that's not what's interesting about him, that he gives in to temptation. You could say King Lear gives in to temptation, but that's not what's interesting about Macbeth. What's interesting about Macbeth is that his experience is the kind of experience of loss and erosion and disaster that is usually the experience of a, of a figure like ourselves or a figure who doesn't merit misfortune at all. With Macbeth, you get a figure not like ourselves, certainly not someone who doesn't merit misfortune, but also a figure who is not like ourselves. At least once he starts, once he's halfway through, once he's so deep-weighted in, um, in the blood and gore that to turn back would be as tedious as go, as go or. Once he's there, once you could say he's diamondized, it's really hard to think of him in plot terms as like ourselves. And yet what Shakespeare is doing is holding on to his character in a way that's fascinating. So, and in a way that's ultimately tragic. So, the, so what Plutarch is doing in um, describing characters rather than stories, rather than plots, what Plutarch is doing, what Plutarch is really interested in, 
then is the characters of the figures that he's writing about. And one of the characters that he's really interested in is, is the character of Antony. But that also means that Plutarch is a really congenial source for Shakespeare because Shakespeare in his tragedies is also really interested in characters and what happens to characters. He's interested in Brutus, for example, in Julius Caesar and what happens to Brutus. The plot, you know, it's a good plot. Uh, Brutus and, the, and, and um, Cassius and the assassins kill Caesar. That's a good plot. Caesar's not happy about dying, but he dies. Um, and um, then uh, Mark Antony, who is not at all a pleasant person in Julius Caesar. How many people have read it um, and remember it? So, yeah, okay, yeah, it's one of those plays you... Yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's short, it's eighth grade, it's got a famous soliloquy or two. And, um, but the interesting thing, maybe, one interesting thing about the play is that the bad, the, the, the person who's clearly the bad guy when it comes to plot, which is Brutus, is actually the figure, the tra he's the tragic figure there. And he's partly tragic because he thinks he's doing the right thing. He, and it's kind of clear that his motivations are noble. Whereas Julius Caesar, he is um, neither good nor bad as a character. He's a little bit uh, strangely cowardly, a little bit of a nervous Nelly, but, uh, and a little bit um, quick to think that he um, can ignore what other people say to him, but he's not in himself that interesting a character. And then there's Mark Antony, who really, really, really um, uh, profits from, capitalizes on first Caesar's, uh, first he brown noses Caesar, and then after Caesar's death, he capitalizes on Caesar's death. And the reason at the beginning of Antony and Cleopatra that he's one of the, he's a triumvir, one of the triumvirate, is that he and Octavius and, um, who's later to be Augustus, and um, Lepidus are now ruling Rome, having defeated Brutus and Cassius. And it's one of the things that Antony's going to complain about, was he really did the defeat, the defeating of Brutus but um, now uh, Octavius is, the, is setting himself up as the most important of the triumvirate, and Antony is against that. Uh, the historical Antony, there's a lot not to like about him, and a lot of North will, um, will give you that. For example, he was the one who had... Um, this is only mentioned in the play, but he has Lepidus... Um, um, sorry, he has Pompey killed. Um, he is, um, in real life, he was um, responsible for the death of Cicero. And uh, so, so Antony was a, was a pretty hard-headed and unsentimental, uh, politically unsentimental uh, ruler when he is one of the rulers of Rome. But that's not how Shakespeare is going to present him. Shakespeare presents him as this figure who, for whom love is the most important thing in the world. 
and that means that he's not in any way an evil figure like Macbeth, whatever you feel about Macbeth. He's not in any way an evil figure about like Macbeth. And it's also the case that he isn't quite making himself the subject of his thoughts in the way that most tragic figures do. So if you think of most, most tragic figures in Shakespeare, you have Hamlet, who, let's just say, a uh, very quick uh, uh, characterization of Hamlet, is that he spends um, an enormous number of lines, an enormous number of time, enormous amount of time wondering about himself and why he isn't able to take revenge. And so he spends a lot of time probing his own character. King Lear spends a fair amount of time if partly probing his own character, partly probing his reaction to the things that have happened to him. Othello probably spends a fair amount of time, some of it which will overlap with, with Antony, but spends a fair amount of time probing himself and his own reactions to his jealousy. First being sure that he's not jealous and then probing his own reactions to his jealousy. Antony spends his time thinking about Cleopatra. He doesn't spend his time thinking about himself. He spends his time thinking about Cleopatra. And that is different from the way that Macbeth even spends his time thinking about Lady Macbeth. And that's why the title, Antony and Cleopatra, is uh, you know, one of um, several plays by Shakespeare which has uh, two names in the title, Troilus and Cressida, Romeo and Juliet. But the uh, Cleopatra, as you'll see, outlives Antony by an act. So she is certainly as central a figure as Antony is. But the play begins with Antony, and it looks at first like Antony is the major figure, and it may look that way for a lot of the play. I'm not sure how much of the play you'll, you'll feel that it looks that way. Um, but at the end, it's Cleopatra is certainly as major as Antony is, and may in fact be more major. And what happens in the course of the play is Cleopatra spends almost no time at all thinking about herself. So here you have two tragic figures who spend almost no time at all thinking about themselves, but do spend a whole lot of time thinking about the other. And that is, um, it, it's pretty remarkable how that happens in Antony and Cleopatra. And then just as you go through it, remember just one more time that Shakespeare is thinking about this couple at exactly the same time that he's thinking about Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. That is, that he is, uh, the, the ways that the two plays intersect, not in the sense of intersectionality, but in the sense of set theory, uh, the way that the two plays intersect, which intersectionality comes from but doesn't work. Um, in set theoretical terms. But the way Antony and Cleopatra intersects with Macbeth is um, therefore going to be fascinating. And in both cases, we are, we the audience, 
are to some extent being asked to feel for characters that we can't certainly entirely approve of and maybe can't approve of at all. Yeah. So they were both written around the same time. Yeah, it seems, I mean, nothing is certain about this, but there is good evidence, um, good internal evidence. For example, the moment when Macbeth uh, remember, or um, Macbeth remembers um, a scene that actually appears in Antony and Cleopatra when he says that um, that when he compares himself to Banquo, he feels that his own genius is rebuked, as tis said, Mark Antony's twas by Caesar. So tis said by whom? Tis said by Plutarch. And um, why was this on Shakespeare's mind? Because he was reading Plutarch and working on Antony and Cleopatra at the same time. And why are we reading North's Plutarch? Because Shakespeare had just read North's Plutarch, and because you'll see echoes in Shakespeare's very language that come right out of North. One interesting thing that you can do is look how, how amazingly and efficiently Shakespeare can take something, can take words out of North, can take phrases and sentences out of North, and turn them into Shakespearean poetry. And it's not a whole lot. It's not that Shakespeare, you know, reads something and and it says, yeah, Cleopatra was sitting on a ship that looked um, that was that was um, really really well appointed. It's as you'll see the famous uh, soliloquy, Ina um, Barbus's famous soliloquy about Cleopatra describing how she and Antony first met, is the barge she sat in like a burnished throne burned on the waters. That's the beginning of the soliloquy. And then he goes on to describe just how beautiful um, the boat that she sat in was when Antony first saw her coming down the River Cydnus. And um, many, many, many of those phrases are just taken wholesale from North. But if you read it in North, you'll think, eh, I'm not so sure I like reading this. It's hard. It's not that pleasant. Um, all the stuff that you said, um, but Shakespeare can tweak it into Shakespeare amazingly quickly and amazingly well. Not that anyone else could. Um, does anyone know where that line reappears in 20th century poetry? In, is it in the wasteland? Okay. Yeah. yeah. In do, the wasteland. Yeah. In the wasteland, it becomes the chair she sat in like a burnished throne. So it's one of the places where Eliot. Um, uh, steals, as he famously said, from uh, from the greats. Um, every good line in Eliot is not a line written by Eliot. Uh, <laughs> that you can't go wrong on that principle. Uh, Eliot is a really, really, really good quoter of other people's great lines. He has a really good sense of other people's great lines, and um, Harold Bloom actually was who hated Eliot was uh, got into an argument with someone in Italy. And um, he was basically saying, oh, you know, Eliot is so overrated. And this Italian professor of American literature said, how can you say, I'm not going to do the accent, how can you say, <laughs> see, um, that he's overrated? I mean, just one line of Eliot's, run softly, sweet Thames, till I end my song. What could be greater than that? 
and Bloom said nothing, but it's Edmund Spencer. <laughs> and um, uh, so it's true. There are lots and lots of great lines of poetry. Lots of people learn to love poetry reading Eliot, and that's because there are lots and lots of great lines in Eliot, but they are him repurposing great lines. Um, so anyhow, so what we go for than you and I. What's that from? No, that's him, but that's not that great a line. No. Um, let us go then. That's a patient etherized upon a table. Yeah. Well, awful. I don't know. No, but. I mean to say it's an awful image. Oh, it's an awful image, yeah. Um, that's from the love song of J.F.R. Prufrock. Okay, so let's go, let's uh, go to the beginning of Antony and Cleopatra. And notice here that the beginning that we have are two people talking, two window characters, talking about what's going on. So Demetrius and Philo are not going to be um, that important. Philo, not at all. Demetrius, barely an important character later on. Um, but um, um, they're talking, and they're talking about Antony. Uh, can you think of another play which begins with two characters talking about the main character? Um, Matt? Uh, Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so who who are you thinking of there? Just the um, servants? Uh, yeah. Talking about the Capulets and Montagues? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, in Cymbeline, like the two well, lords are talking about like all of the backstory of like everything, which is like a lot of backstory. Yeah, a lot of backstory. Yeah, um, good. Someone should write a book called A Lot of Backstory. Um, yeah, Nicole. King Lear. What happens at the beginning of King Lear? It's like Edmund, or not Edmund. Well, it is Edmund, but it's mainly... Edmund's dad, Gloucester. Thank you. the other guy who Gloucester is talking to. Whose name is... Yes! All right. And they're talking about the good sport him. <laughs> yeah, but first they're talking about the division of the kingdom. So the first, so we're getting a little bit of backstory. So Shakespeare, it's it's a it's a great um, a, a, a great uh, trope that Shakespeare has invented, which is instead of having the main character just come in and say, "Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the sun of York," or or um, King Richard saying, uh, King Richard II saying, um, did you bring your son to um, go argue with Mowbray and so on? What you have are relatively minor characters <laughs> discussing a situation before we actually see the situation. Ari, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to mention Henry IV, Part One. I think, is the priests talking about, uh, aren't they, am I misremembering that? The, they're, they're talking about you might be thinking of Henry IV, Part Two. Yeah, maybe. No, I think I'm actually, I don't know, I'm confused. Anyway, yeah, that happens. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and the fourth part one begins with Hal's friends talking. Um, yeah. With Hamlet, yeah. Yeah, it's, sorry? They don't really, they just talk about, like, they What's kind it? of mention the ghost, but not. Well, first, what what they're t what they are talking about that turns out not to be that important, um, but what they are talking about is the fact that Denmark seems to be on a war footing. That is, that there are two things that are going on. One that there's that that uh, they've seen a ghost, 
And the other is that Denmark is um, 24 hour a day um, getting ready for um, building and, and buying um, implements of war because they, it looks like there's going to be a war about to break out with Norway. Um, and the then Horatio comes in and uh, he explains that that's what's happening and also that um, he doesn't think there's a ghost, but when the ghost appears, he brings those two things together by saying, well, Prince Hamlet is someone the ghost will talk to. So that kind of sets up the entry of, of Prince Hamlet as an important figure. So in some ways it's similar, in others it's different. But here what you just have, as at the beginning of King Lear, are two minor characters commenting on a major character and giving you their sense, giving you a sense of the reputation that this major character has among the minor characters. So that's always what to pay attention to, what other people think about the major character. So in King Lear, it's methought the king um, did always prefer the Duke of Albany to Cornwall, but now in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes he favors. So here you have Philo in the middle of a conversation, unhappy with Antony. Nay, but this dotage of our generals, generals or flows the measure. So what does that mean? Yeah. He's like too in love to really care about anything else and it's annoying to them. Yeah, yeah. He's so in love. He's doting on Cleopatra. Um, anyone remember the word dote from another play? It's okay if you don't. Yeah. Um, in Romeo and Juliet, Fire Lawrence is like, stop that. And Romeo's like, you told me like whatever. And he's like, I chided you for like doting, not for loving. Good. Nice. He makes that distinction. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Also, isn't that also in Midsummer's? Yeah. Since you talk about doting on. Um, and she, poor lady, dotes, devoutly dotes, yeah, dotes to distraction body. on the spotted yeah. and inconstant man. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's also what um, Titania says. That No, that's not bottom. That's, um, that's Helena on oh, Demetrius. Oh, oh, but I'm later, Titania, Titania on, on bottom oh. says, how I dote, yes. how I love thee, how I dote on thee. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it's loving, it, it's, it's a word for loving which is too much. Um, you know, when grandparents dote on their children, on their grandchildren, they never dote on their children. It's weird. When they um, dote on their grandchildren, it's they're allowed to because they're grandparents and these are grandchildren. But here it's a, it's a mildly negative word, or maybe even more than mildly negative. Nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the measure. Um, is there anything odd about that phrasing? Here, that's the easy question. Is there anything odd about that phrasing? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> what are you thinking of, Nicole? <laughs> well, it's it's figured if you may not you may not even notice that it's at all odd, but the thing to notice is that what would the opposite of dotage that or flows the measure be? That doesn't reach the measure. Yeah, or dotage in um, in, in 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 measured terms. So the word dotage already implies that it or flows the measure. It's too, dotage is already too much. So here there's a kind of sense of um, this is more dotage than there should be. 
like a reasonable amount of dotage, a measured amount of dotage would be okay. Um, but this dotage overflows the measure. So that's not quite a paradox or an oxymoron, but just do notice that there's a little bit of um, conflicting, um, if not ideas, at least conflicting sense of verbal shading in the idea of too much dotage as though there could be the right amount of dotage. Yeah. If you want to talk about the construction, I also think it's interesting that the first subject in the play is dotage, nice. not a person. Yes. It's not the general. It's like a possession of the general, but like it's an interesting way of constructing it. Yeah. And like yeah. a clumsy way to like say out loud so it feels intentional. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Yeah, Nicole. Also, a lot about this sentence is excessive. Like, you could say dotage over general, you don't need to say dotage over generals. And then also just using both dotage and overflow, that's excessive. So I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's paralleling the excessiveness of the dotage itself. Yeah. Okay, good. So it's excessively excessive, which is itself excessively excessive. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I really like that. Okay, hang on as you read through this play to the word measure because it is a word that's going to reappear interestingly. So, nay, but this dotage of our journals are flows to measure. Those his goodly eyes that o'er the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated Mars now bend, now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front. So, someone paraphrase that. Yeah. He was like really fierce in war, but now he's all lovey about this girl, Cleopatra. Yeah. And so, what he used to do with his vision, again, hang on to that, that that's the way Philo is saying it, that he used to use his vision for the purposes of war. I don't mean vision. Um, I just mean vision, literal vision, what you go to the eye doctor to get checked. He used to use his vision um, to make sure that his soldiers were um, in the right order as they were ready to fight the files and musters of the war. And when he was ready to fight, his eyes would glow um, like plated Mars, Mars being the god of war. war. And... Um, Mars himself in armor. In a sense, Antony looked like Mars when he was in armor. But now his vision is bending elsewhere. They now bend, they now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front. Yeah. Um, just like for context, maybe I'm missing this, but they're not like actively at war. When this is happening, are they? No, but but Rome is always the d defense Knitting. was yeah. Okay, so that's like why it's because like if they were just like chilling and it was peaceful and like nothing really was going on, they wouldn't really have any reason to be angry at Antony for like being so in love. Yeah, but we're about to find out okay. um, that they are actively at war yeah. and that that Antony should be in Rome ready to fight rather than in Alexandria, which is really far away, and um, where what he's, what, all he's doing is partying. So now um, they change the office and devotion of view upon a Tony front. What does front mean? Dark face. Sorry? Like a face. Yeah, it's, uh, in French it means forehead, and in um, 17th century England 
um, it, it meant forehead as well. Um, if you confront someone, you're going for, forehead to forehead with them. Um, yeah? I'll suggest that the first sentence begins with doctors rather than to general. Like the second sentence also kind of employs like a synecdoche. Yeah, a synecdoche. I, I yeah. stand for the kind of the neglectfulness of the general, but instead of attributing that directly to the general, they are kind of saying it. Yeah, his eyes are doing this. It's not that now he is turning his eyes upon a Tony front. It's that that's what his eyes are doing. Um, there's something just slightly contemptuous about describing him as the um, patsy or the passive um, uh, experiencer of what his dotage is doing to him, what his eyes are doing to him, as though he's he doesn't have any um, as though he's too weak to control himself. It's a, it, it, again, it gives a hint of his being out of control. Yeah. In Emily. Greek and Roman mythology and in art, you often have love and and war together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In one way or another. Yeah. Hence Venus and Mars um, and their relationship. Um, what else does front mean? What's the little joke here? Yeah. It can also be like a side of the war, so like the... The Western Front. Yeah, so all quiet on the Western Front. The front means the front lines. So now, instead of looking at the front that he should be fighting, um, if he were at war with um, the Scythians, for example, which is going to come up later, then he would be, he would be looking at the Scythian front. Um, but instead, he's looking upon a tawny front. Um, tawny means dark-skinned, and so it means that now he's looking at Cleopatra's face instead of the front lines of a battle. And then again, his captain's heart. This is, this is um, what Cassie and Sun Kyung were noticing. His captain's heart, again, not him, but his heart. His captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great fights hath burst the buckles on his breast, reneges all temper and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. So um, we have his dotage, his eyes, his heart. And when he used to fight, he'd burst out of his own armor because he'd be panting. Um, so hard and his heart would be beating so hard in, in um, the fight that he'd be like the Incredible Hulk. Um, and this is part of the really extended Marvel universe antiquity patterns. <laughs> um, and now it reneges all temper. It's become completely weak. It's no longer expanding and bursting out, but that very thing which used to, it used to swell with panting, let's say, now that very structure has become that of a bellows um, and a fan to cool a gypsy's lust. Um, yeah, um, the gypsy is who? And why is she called a gypsy? She's Egyptian. She's Egyptian, which is at the time um, people thought that the people called were that that um, uh, that that um, Romish people were from Egypt. Um, so, um, and Antony's going to use the word about her later as well, that she hath like a right gypsy at fast and loose beguiled me to the heart of loss. 
that's a thing that he's going to say about her later. So notice that not only Antony, but Cleopatra is being described in terms of parts of her. His captain's heart is looking, or his eyes are looking upon a tawny front. Not, um, they turn their, devo their office and devotion, their view upon Cleopatra, but upon her front. And then he's doing what he's doing, or his heart is doing what it's doing, to cool a gypsy's lust. So lust and dotage are, are the analogies here. This dotage of our generals, that is his love for her, the lust of the gypsy, that is her sexual desire for him. Um, they're not giving her credit or debit, whatever you want to think it is for dotage. Um, what they're saying about her is that she is feeling lust, that she is lustful. Um, in the play, she is going to be um, represented as about 39 or 40 years old. Um, and so part of the idea here is that she's, it, it matters that she's older than she and Antony belong to an older generation. They belong to what in, is usually in Shakespeare, the parental generation. Uh, they are, if you feel that the Macbeths are already feeling older than let's say the Macduffs um, who have little kids at home, uh, if you think of the Macbeths as already being older, she's already given suck and so on at the beginning of the play, which you probably should because Shakespeare isn't saying, oh, now they're much older than they were at the start, then the Antony and Cleopatra are roughly, um, this, you, you, you would slot them in the same um, generation as the Macbeths. You don't like that? Well, like, the Macbeths are just like, they're so sexless. Yeah. So, well, like, no, they're, they're into S&M, it seems like. <laughs> well, maybe, but it just like, it's very, I don't know, Antony and Cleopatra, like, to me, they're, maybe they're not very youthful, but their love is. Yeah. And I like don't really see that same kind of love between the Macbeths. I think they love each other, but I yeah. don't think it's like that. No, so it's definitely not the same kind of love. But the point is that that again, Shakespeare. One of the things that Hamlet complains about in his mother is that at her age, um, the hectic in the blood is tame, which means um, that Hamlet is basically saying, and. Um, do you think this is true of your moms? Um, that at the age they are, they can't possibly be feeling the kind of teenage sexual desire with hormones raging wild that um, people 39 feel. 39 is very old. Sorry? 39 is very yes. old. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, that's Ham so Hamlet is sure that there's no way his mother can um, be hot for Claudius. <coughs> He says it. Yeah. It's not me, it's Shakespeare. <laughs> um, the hectic in the blood is tame. Hectic in the blood we would call um, hormones. Um, and I mean, almost literally we call them hormones. They, they are um, the, the uh, biological substance that is making you feel lust. So, it, so there's no way that you can um, feel lust, says Hamlet, for... Claudius, um, Shakespeare writing Hamlet is closer to 
um, to Gertrude's age than to Hamlet, at least at the beginning of the play. Um, Hamlet turns out to be 30 at the end of the play, but a way of putting that is to say he only becomes 30 at the end of the play. Even though only a few months have passed, um, in the course of those few months, he's gone from being an undergraduate at a time when you were undergraduates um, younger than you are today. He goes from being an undergraduate to being someone who's 30. And it takes a few months, but he does it. Um, because you're not supposed to be um, uh, calculating time in Shakespeare unless he tells you to. So, but, so Shakespeare is writing about a young man who can't believe that someone Shakespeare's age could possibly feel sexual desire. Yeah. But then when he describes his dad after that, he like compares them to all these Greek gods and basically like like make, turns them into this like viral powerhouse kind of thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if he's applying it to all people that age, maybe just to his mom. Well, but what he's, yeah, what he's saying is that sexual desire as opposed to, you can be virile in other ways, the way Antony is here. But the idea that, um, but there's something distasteful to um, Hamlet and to Demetrius and to Philo about this, um, really strong sexual desire that they're seeing in people who should be old enough not to, um, not to feel that way. Um, and, and that's why he, that, that's why they're describing sexuality in, in such an appalling way. It's become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. Um, so what that means is, you know, if you think about it, his heart has to beat fast um, because he has to strain to satisfy her sexually. Um, and uh, she's, she's sexually very demanding, and that's sort of ridiculous. That's why his dotage o'erflows the measure. So here is a very unpleasant attitude on the part of Philo about the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra. So one thing that Shakespeare is, likes doing in something like King Lear in a play like this is to give you a point of view which is going to turn out not to be the right point of view. That is that Philo and Demetrius, all they are doing is criticizing Antony. Uh, they think that what he's doing with his time is absolutely wrong. A standard reading, I don't think anyone or I don't think many people um, still sustain this reading, but let's just say then a standard question about Antony and Cleopatra is um, to what extent, now I'm just going to, I should just say it a lot. People have been misled for hundreds of years into seeing Antony and Cleopatra as actually the tragedy of Antony. Not the tragedy of Cleopatra, but the tragedy of Antony. And if you speak, which, you, which is often useful, but it's often, but it's also tends to be overdone, but if you speak of a tragic flaw, that is what it is in a great character that leads them to tragedy, then Antony's tragic flaw is going to be that he loves too much. And that he, this is the standard, um, use the old standard reading of Antony and Cleopatra, that Antony has a choice to make, and that choice is a choice between love and duty. And the choice that he makes is the choice of love and the reason that it's wrong is the woman that he loves is not 
noble enough in her own character, not um, herself a worthy object for Antony's love. So that to cool a gypsy's lust, that in what used to be the standard reading of Antony and Cleopatra is, a, is an accurate description of her. So one of the things that you'll see as you read Antony and Cleopatra is that Cleopatra does a lot of questionable things. And those questionable things, if you don't like her, it's not hard to make a case against her. If you don't like her, it's not hard to say, here are the reasons that um, one should not like her and one should blame Antony for giving everything up, including two wives and um, his clear duty in order to be seduced by her. So a standard reading of Antony and Cleopatra is that Antony is seduced by someone and the tragedy is that he lets himself be seduced by this person who is um, um, a Jezebel, not someone who should be seducing him. And I think one, and in a sense that's what Philo is offering you that at the start as a perspective. And the question is, um, how do you not fall into seeing things from that perspective as people did for 300 years? Yeah. I mean, at this point you could technically make the argument they're both that both are technically kind of tragic because they're both, in a sense, cheating on their significant other, even though Caesar died before, you know, Cleopatra saw Antony. Yeah, it's three years later when Antony first sees her. So it's Caesar. Seems... <laughs> 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 Come on, guys. <laughs> so it just seems kind of Caesar, then Antony Caesar. <laughs> so Cassie, you okay after that one? Could you just explain it one more time? <laughs> Caesar dies, Antony Caesar, and dies. How's that? And you all know, right? If you've ever taken an English class, you know it's a it's well. I think we mentioned in this class also uh, the 17th century slang. What die means in 17th century slang? John Donne. So yeah. So we are taper soon at our own cost. Die is John Donne. Yeah, so Caesar dies, then Antony Caesar and dies. <laughs> Get it? Say no more. Not anymore. Um, Matt, then Ari. Yeah. So, in a way, it just seems kind of, I guess you could say counterintuitive to show pity for Cleopatra because it seems like in the course of falling in love with Antony, she's basically forgotten all about her. She, ex she explicitly says that later on. Um, she says um, that uh, when she's talking about how much she loves Antony, her, her um, women make fun of her. And um, she says, oh, the brave Antony. And they say, the brave Caesar. Um, she says, the noble Antony. They say, the noble Caesar. And then she says, why do you keep saying that? And they say, um, uh, uh, sweet lady, we sing but after you. That is, that's what you used to say. 
Um, and they're making fun of the idea that this time it's really love. You've all, you all have friends who've said that, right? Like, you know, they break up with someone and then they, you know, they were totally in love with that person then they break up. Then it's like, oh, I don't even know if I ever really even loved that person. And then they meet someone else. Yeah, you're recognizing yeah, it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's like, oh my God, I'm so in love. It's never been like this before. And you point out that a year ago they were saying, oh my God, I'm so in love. Um, so that's what they're doing to Cleopatra. And then her response is really <laughs> wonderful. Um, she says, my salad days, that's where that phrase comes from, my salad days when I was green in judgment, young in blood, to say as I said then. And so what she's saying is the very opposite of what Hamlet and, and um, by implication Philo is saying, what she's saying is, I didn't have a clue as to what love was when I was, when I thought I was in love with Caesar. I was just a young person then, and I didn't know what love was the way I do now. And um, that's, that is, that, that makes it explicit in this play that Antony, both Antony and Cleopatra are claiming that middle-aged love, or at least that love in their middle age, love at the age that they are, is actually much more intense than any love that they experienced before that. That's an explicit claim that Cleopatra is making and making for both of them. Nicole. I think also the fact that Philo is opening up this entire play by like slandering the true tragic yes. heroes and using such excessive language, we're not supposed to trust Philo. Yeah, no, that's right. But we are supposed to see how um, he's how how they, but in specifically how Antony is being talked about. So um, Demetrius is going to say, "I'm I'm sorry that he approves what the common liar says in Rome." That is that uh, we find out, we're about to find out in this scene that Philo in describing Antony to Demetrius is essentially saying, look, you can see yourself, behold and see, you can see yourself that everything that the people in Rome say about him is true, that everyone in Rome is complaining about him uh, for just um, being gaga over Lady Cleopatra. <laughs> like that one? No? No. Not at all? I really didn't. Okay, I'm sorry. That was a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> was that a That's or just Lady a Gaga. Gaga over Lady... No. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, you don't think this would get me a share in a cry of players? Reference, anyone? Huh, you lose then. Hamlet. Hamlet says, would not this, sir, um, get me a share in a cry of players? And Horatio says, a half share. Um, <laughs> he's kind of grudging. Um, yeah? Just a quick comment back on what you were talking about earlier with salad. Is that where we get Caesar salad from? No. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. I had to. You had to ask. It's good. Um, it's from a restaurant. Yes. Um, so, but why salad days anyway? Because um, things were green then. Um, so that's why she was green in judgment, cold in blood. So, the so let's go on. So here's yeah. Just quickly, 
is the 17th century slang of to die related to the French? Yeah, la okay. petite mort. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it's a little death. Read um, John Sorry? I said read John Donne. Yeah. So, um, but uh, Yeats uses the phrase also at the, in the beginning of the 20th century. Um, uh, uh, birds in the trees, um, the young in one another's arms, those dying generations at their song. So they're dying because they will mm -hmm. die, but they're dying generations because by dying they're generating the future and that dying is in particular sexual dying. Mm -hmm. um, when Dunn says we are tapers, do people know that of Valediction? I'm sorry, um, the canonization. Um, he says we are tapers too and at our own cost die. That is that we're candles and we die at our own cost. That is the, the burning of the candle. Um, the candle is lit, but by being lit, it, it's costing its wax and dying. But it's also a sexual pun, which is that when the candle stops being erect and rigid, um, it dies at its own cost mm -hmm. because having had sex, the erect, rigid candle is no longer erect and rigid. Um, and there was a theory then, which unfortunately to some extent seems to um, be true of at least certain mammals, um, that every time a male ejaculated, it, he lost um, a few minutes of life, mm -hmm. um, that ejaculation was actually bad for longevity. And this has actually been proved true of some mammals, mm -hmm. um, not as far as I know of humans, but of some mammals. <laughs> um, so, but at any rate, that was a strong theory at the time. That's why Shakespeare in another sonnet um, that be, this is a sonnet 126, the expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. That's the first line and a half of that sonnet. And the expense of spirit means um, not only that you are, <coughs> that your mind is feeling lustful, um, but it literally means ejaculation. That is that to ejaculate is to um, expend some spirit um, to spend it, to spend some of the spirit that you have at the beginning of your life. And what are you, where are you doing it? Into a waste of shame, into something that only makes you feel ashamed afterwards, but it's also a very misogynistic way of describing a woman's body or a woman's vagina. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. So. Um, Shakespeare in that sonnet is using the word lust kind of the way Philo is using it here. And then, yeah. Is this like ironic because of his name? Um, yeah, Philo I'm sure that's why, okay. why it's Philo, which means love. love. Yeah. So then as in King Lear, after you have this little, not even conversation because it's only one person speaking, but to another person. Um, then, as in King Lear, the main characters come in right after this kind of grace note before they come in. And um, Philo goes on, Look where they come, take but good note, and you shall see in him the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. So why triple pillar? He's a triumvirate. Right. One of the three pillars holding the the Roman Empire up. The triple pillar of 
the world, transformed into a strumpet's fool. Who's the strumpet? Cleopatra. Behold and see. And then Cleopatra says, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. What does that remind you of? Think King Lear again. Yeah. Yes, whom shall we say doth love us most? So again, we begin with a challenge to describe love. So structurally, really interesting parallel to King Lear. That first you get this conversation about the main character or characters, and then you get a challenge as to can you say, can you use your words to quantify your love. Hamlet in Act 5, when he confronts Laertes at Ophelia's grave, says to Laertes, who blames Hamlet for her death as well as for his father's death, probably rightly in both cases, um, Hamlet kind of ungallantly says, I loved Ophelia. That's very important for the audience. But he says, I loved Ophelia. And then he goes on to say, 40,000 brothers could not, with all their quantity of love, make up my sum. So there again, you get this odd moment that Shakespeare seems to like of quantification of love. And Hamlet, there he is quantifying it. It is greater than 40,000 times Laertes. Um, so that's how much he loves. But here Cleopatra is asking Antony to do what Lear has asked Cordelia to do. If it be love indeed, tell me how much. Antony's response is there's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. What does that mean? Yeah. That however much love can be described is not enough. Yeah. If you could, if you had. Uh, if you had a, quanti a, a number, or if you had a word that could quantify love, then that isn't very much. Um, is that what you were going to say? Yeah, no, it's really reminiscent of like a moment in Romeo and Juliet, or like a couple, where she's like, if, I don't know, like I can't quantify it, I forget. I don't know. It was like... Uh, like, as much as, like, the sea, but the more yeah. that you take out of it, the bigger right. it is. Yeah, and like, yeah. Yeah. So um, here the idea is that Antony is saying any um, ability to count this kind of love, that would be beggary. So notice that um, what's a good synonym for the word reckoned? What word that we've already seen in these first 14 lines um, or 16, 15 lines um, would be a good synonym for reckoned? Measure. Measure, Yeah. So he's, he's proving Philo right. Um, there's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. Hang on also not only to the word measure, but the word beggar in this play. Um, you'll see it appear interestingly several times. Is your hand up? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, similar thing happens in Macbeth, where, like, Macbeth comes in echo, which is just a set. And I don't know what, 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 why is that like the, the, the shape you expected, but the audience can recognize this. Oh, he would certainly expect the audience to hear, um, even if subliminally, um, he's certainly expecting um, them to hear a counterpoint in, the, in what characters are saying. So it's certainly set up so that 
Philo is saying that this love go, goes beyond the measure, that is, you could say, goes beyond any boundary. Measure can mean both something that you can count, but it's a particular way of counting, which is having a reference point um, that you can see whether it exceeds or doesn't come up to that reference point. It's just what you do with a ruler. Is this longer than a foot or shorter than a foot? You put a ruler next to it and you see whether it comes to the end of the ruler or not. So that idea of measuring as coming up to a standard, um, the idea of reckoning doesn't, would make that standard, let's say, a certain number. Um, but the very next thing Cleopatra says is, I'll set a born how far to be beloved. That is, um, I will give, a, the, the um, Arden's footnote is wrong here, um, I will give a, a, a boundary to see if you can love me that far. So, you know, it's like saying, I'll set a born to see whether you can throw a javelin that far. Can you really throw it 100 yards? Can you throw it to the other goal line? So Cleopatra is saying, no, I'm just going to give you a line. Uh, um, you all know the word born from Hamlet, right? What is death? Oh, you have right, it's the ultimate born. <clears throat> No, you're not getting that one? Is that like a Jason Bourne? Yes, the Bourne. No, the first one. Yes, thank you. You hate this, Ari, but you said it. The Bourne ultimatum, the ultimate Bourne. Ha ha, okay. Um, this next line is great. So what, he's, what she's saying is I'll set a boundary. I'll set a place, and we'll see if your love can go that far. Um, so that is now bringing the idea of reckoning and measuring together to which um, so if I were a nasty teacher I would say will you want to share that with the rest of us but um, it looks so delightful that do no, you want to I share found, it with the rest of us I found like the like love beggary Romeo and Juliet thing oh okay what is it um, it's, in the, it's like right before they get married and Juliet says uh Conceit more rich in matter than in words, brags of his substance, not of ornament. They are but beggars that can count their worth. But my true love is grown to such excess that I cannot sum up half. All right, nice, perfect. Yeah, I I totally forgotten that. That's perfect. I did not remember the Good. No. Yeah. So that's another place of whether love is quantifiable or not. And remember that in King Lear, what Regan and Goneril do is they say that, but in a kind of dutiful way. Um, that is, um, they, they, they use, um, excuse me for saying sarcastic, they use comparatives. I love you more than words can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight, space, and liberty, beyond all manner of so much, I love you. But that is substituting dutiful um, claims to love more than can be measured with, for convincing claims. And what we get here are convincing claims. I'll set a born how far to be beloved. And Antony's reply then is, then thou must needs find out new heaven, new earth. That is, this heaven, this earth, is not enough to contain my love. As the footnote points out, this is a biblical 
reference, um, although it's before the New Testament in Revelation, which is much after the death of Christ. Um, the uh, St. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. That's something mm -hmm. like Man of Woman Born that Shakespeare's audience would recognize, at least some of his audience would recognize. And the thing to remember is that this is set at the moment, at the time, that Christianity is about to begin. At the end of the play, Octavian is going to say, the time of universal peace is near. And what he's referring to is the Roman emperor, the um, 200 years of peace that follow upon his victory. Uh, you do get essentially 200 years of peace in Rome, which is the longest period of peace in that large a um, political um, entity in the history of history. Um, that is since uh, history um, started, you know, history literally means written history, history that's written down. Um, so he's right. That there's that what that his victory is bringing peace, but there's also a sense that it is the beginning of Christianity. And Antony and Cleopatra belong to a world; their love belongs to a world that's over. And um, again, the reference here to the New Testament is subliminally um, reminding the audience of that. Um, then thou, must, thou needs to find out new heaven, new earth, and then enter a messenger. So the first of many, many, many messengers in Anne and Cleopatra. We talked about the messengers a little bit uh, when we were talking about Macbeth. And in particular, this, the messengers in Anne and Cleopatra are not what are called Senecan or Senecan messengers. So Seneca has messenger figures in his plays, um, and his messengers are always there merely to convey information. They are of no interest as characters. One of the things that you'll see in Anne and Cleopatra, even well beyond how messengers function in Macbeth, is that the messengers, despite themselves, become part of the human interaction. They have characters. They're not merely functional. So, messenger, news, my good lord, from Rome. Antony, greats me, the sum. So what does greats me mean? Annoying. Yeah, yeah, how annoying, um, how grating. The sum, just tell me right now. Um, so that's a, um, Shakespeare is about to do something really, really interesting here. Actually, I should ask you guys this, um, because I'm interested in instances of this. But um, moments, there's, there's something that should be a TV trope but doesn't seem to be named as one. When someone doesn't want to say something or someone's asking a question and someone else is reluctant to answer, which if you're watching a TV show or a movie, you know that you're going to get the answer about two seconds later. Someone will say, oh, I really don't want to tell you. And then you'll say, oh, come on, you've got to. And then it's all right. And then they tell you. And... Um, that's a way, that's a, that's a screenwriter's way of making sure that you realize this is important information, but also information that someone doesn't want the character getting that information to have. And so you always get it a beat later. And you always get it a beat later in Shakespeare as well, except this time. So Annie says, okay, what's the message? And then Cleopatra starts talking, 
and then they refused to hear the message. And so we and the audience were waiting for this message, and then we don't get it. Um, now, we can figure out what it is a little bit later, but we don't get it yet. Okay, um, we've started. We're not that far behind, but read Act 2 for next week.